Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. It is the mother of all talk shows. You can listen in crystal clarity on FM in the Washington, D.C. area. 105.5 are the numbers there. Retune if you are in D.C. And you can listen on AM radio right across the United States from Burning City to Burning City. You can listen all over the world thanks to the wonders of the Internet and SputnikNews.com. Half a million people, more than half a million people last week watched as well as listened to the show. So if you're watching now on Facebook, please share it with every one of your friends. You can watch on my Facebook page and on RT's multiple Facebook pages. Ditto on YouTube. And if you are watching on my YouTube, please subscribe to the channel which is now over 100,000 strong, but I'm still waiting uh, for YouTube to give me the award which other people get for getting over 100,000 subscribers. Perhaps it's lost in the post. But you can also watch on RT's multiple YouTube channels. You can watch on Twitter, as an amazing number of you do. You can watch on Instagram and on Twitch and on Telegram and goodness knows how many other platforms. Now, I'm not so stupid as not to know that some of you will be switching over at 8 o'clock to watch the football match between England and Italy, the build-up to which is well underway. And I can tell you uh, there are some boisterous scenes in famous London landmarks. I'll speak again in a minute about that. But you can also, of course, watch back after the game, late at night if you're disappointed in the result, or tomorrow when you are in recovery from a great result. Now, I'm supporting England tonight. England is not my national team. Uh, but I am British, so there's that. And England is not just a part, but the major part of the island on which I was born and have lived all of my life. There's the fact that the England football team is a near-perfect representation of what Britain now looks like and has managed to unify all the different minority and majority communities here on this island. I'm leaving Scotland out of that for a minute. They get a special mention later in my monologue. But the English people have come together around Gareth Southgate's England team like at no other time in our history. It helps uh, that some of our very best players are black but some of our very best players are white, and they all seem to love each other very much indeed. 
I've seen video and pictures of British people of Indian descent or Pakistani descent, children in a madrasa. I've seen uh, people uh, like The Voice, uh, the black newspaper in London, celebrate the black players in the team, wish England well. There's that for national unity because I love my country, you see, and I want it to do well. And uh, precondition for it doing well is that we have national unity. There's the fact that for more than half my life, I have uh, not only lived in England, but prospered in England. The English people have twice elected me to Parliament, me, a foreigner. They elected without once ever mentioning the fact that England was not my native land. There's the fact that five of my six children were born in England. Uh, there's the fact that most of my work and my customers and my followers and my supporters are in England. There's the fact that the players in the England team, among them are my actual footballing heroes and not just footballing. Arise, Sir Marcus Rashford, the champion of poor children, who did so much to force the Tory government's backing down over depriving the poorest children in our land of free school meals during the summertime. But I thrill every week, every weekend, to the exploits of Harry Maguire and Luke Shaw and Marcus Rashford and Sancho and Sterling and perhaps above all, Harry Kane, the quintessential Englishman, like an Englishman from another age, like an Englishman from the Tiger comics, kind of man that if you had to be in a trench, you'd want standing right next to you. Uh, there's all of that. Uh, but above all, I want to say that the auto-enmity of other people towards the England football team is as ugly a thing as I have ever seen. There's banter and there's ugliness. And the ugliness of the anyone but England brigade, which includes some people close to me, not 10 yards from me right at this minute, is an ugly and juvenile thing. We live here. Why would we not want a team from here to prosper in the European football championships? Why would we not want players that we cheer on and marvel at to do well? Because they're wearing their national shirts. What would that make us if so? All these Scottish people evincing hate against England would be better getting angry with the Scottish football authorities who have so miserably presided over Scotland's footballing fate. I went to the World Cup in Frankfurt in Germany in 1974 when Scotland had one of the best football teams in the world. What happened? 
How did we go from that to this? I played football from the age of five years old in Scotland. We were taught football by the primary school teachers. Now, all these decades later, we're still taught football by the school teachers. Why aren't our children receiving the kind of coaching on the kind of pitches, in the kind of halls that the children of Denmark, to name just one, are? Or the Netherlands? are other small countries with small populations have prospered mightily at the football but Scotland which along with England was the home of football is in such a palace palace state so get angry with those running your own parish rather than evincing your small country syndrome against your neighbors. Good neighborliness is, after all, a holy thing. It's not just holy, it is actually common sense. That's not to say that my kind of patriotism overlooks uh, the blunders and crimes that my own country has committed. Who could seriously, credibly accuse me of that. The reason we've got all these black players in the England team, I don't need to describe, do I? Do I need to tell you how these black people got here? How they got to the Caribbean in the first place, do I? I'm not one to overlook the blunders and the crimes of Britain. But those blunders and crimes were not committed by the ordinary Joe and Joanne in Britain's cities. There was no white privilege down the coal mines or in the mills. There was no white privilege enjoyed by the barefooted child labor that was still working in Britain until the late years of the 19th century, there was no white privilege amongst my ancestors, plowing land and toiling in jute and flax mills, no white privilege at all. No crime or blunder was committed by them, but by our rulers who overwhelmingly enjoyed the fruits of those crimes and blunders. And there have been too many, many without number. I could not find the time in this show to adumbrate them all, but I need to turn to just one of them. Next Saturday, on the anniversary of the death of Dr. David Kelly, the British weapons scientist, the professional inspector of other people's weapons who appeared in a blaze of publicity in front of a House of Commons committee and only hours later was found dead in the woods as he had earlier predicted he would be. It's David Kelly's death anniversary and it is the occasion 
of the premiere of the film that I have made with the great Irish director Sean Murray called Killing Kelly, which will be available to you all instantly by download, by DVD. And I hope that many of you will avail yourself of it. Not just because it investigates the crime that was committed against Dr. David Kelly, but even more importantly as than that, it investigates the bigger crime of which this was a part. The crime committed by the Labour government of Tony Blair. The Labour government of Tony Blair, paid for by the Labour Chancellor. Whatever it takes, he said, Gordon Brown, prosecuted uh, by the war criminals, Jeff Hoon, and many, many others in that Labour cabinet, and spun and lied for uh, by the Labour liars, the Gobels, to Tony Blair, Alastair Campbell, and the rest of his team, about whom much more later in my legal action in connection with the Batley by-election, the crime that was committed by this country against the people of Afghanistan and Iraq was just the latest of Britain's rulers' long list of imperial crimes. But it was one of the most egregious, one of the most costly. A million people have died and counting. Extremism and fanaticism has been cascaded across the whole world. The Iraq war isn't over yet, and the consequences of it will be felt by the youngest child in the family of the youngest person watching or listening to this this evening. I've told you before, I will never give up. And after me, my sons and my daughters, seeking justice and accountability for the killers of Kelly, for the killers of a million Iraqis, for the killers of an uncountable number of Afghans, of Libyans, of Syrians, of Yemenis, and all of these are just the 21st century crimes of colonialism, of imperialism. The United States has now stolen out of Afghanistan like a thief in the night, scuttling like the last days of Saigon from their ill-gotten gains. Clambering aboard aircraft are the comprador of the foreign occupation of Afghanistan, desperately running across the border of Tajikistan. The obscurantist savages of the Taliban, whom we overthrew in 2001, are back in 2021 as obscurantist, and I have no doubt, as savage as they were. What was it all about?
The Labour Foreign Secretary Jack Straw said in early 2002 in the British Parliament with me sitting just few yards from him that our soldiers may be home by Christmas. And when I rose to tell him our soldiers will not be home ten Christmases hence, he laughed. He invited the house to laugh. Oh, how they laughed. But of course, my prediction was a massive underestimate. Our soldiers are still there 20 years after they went there. Dr. John Reed, Tony Blair's Minister for War and many other things, said that we might be able to go to Helmand province and return without a shot being fired. But hundreds of our young people left their life's blood in the sand there. Thousands of our young people were mutilated and disabled there. Tens of thousands have been mentally affected by uh, their time there, and I speak only in this case of the British armed forces that were sent. In the case of the United States, the toll is much, much larger. I told Tony Blair, nobody has successfully occupied. Ale Alexander the Great did not successfully occupy Afghanistan, and you, sir, are no Alexander the Great. The empire has now lost three wars in Afghanistan. But the criminals who made that crime and that blunder are still around. They didn't lose their positions. In many cases, they have greater office and certainly far greater wealth than they did when they began the crimes that they began. That's what's wrong with Britain. Not just that we committed crimes, but that the criminals go unpunished, indeed go rewarded mightily for their crimes, while the poor bloody infantry leave their life's blood on the ground. It's all coming up over the next two hours and 40 minutes because it's the mother of all talk shows. Now, I've got a long list of places that you can watch as well as listen. Of course, listeners are just as valuable to us as viewers. We're not vain or anything. We like to think that as many people are listening as are watching. But if you are watching, here's where you can do it. Moats TV Twitter, Moats TV Facebook, Twitch on RT International's YouTube and RT International's Facebook, on RT UK's YouTube and RT UK's Facebook, on RT UK's Twitter, and on George Galloway Facebook, George Galloway YouTube, George Galloway Twitter, 
and on FM in the Washington DC area of the United States, 105.5 FM there. And right across the United States on AM, out of Maryland. And the monologue is streamed as usual on Instagram. And thousands, of course, are listening on our good friends, sputniknews.com. Download their app, why don't you? Join the growing number of people studying at the Open University of the Airways. Now, here's the uh, first poll of the evening. Who has got the best national anthem? A, Britain, B, Russia, C, Italy. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. Why don't you? Now, Patrick Christie's gets an order. He gets a special award for appearing tonight because he's as big a football fan as me, but I've got to be here. He doesn't, but he is. It's Patrick Christie's, the journalist and broadcaster. Patrick, I know you've got one eye on another screen. I'll try not to detain you uh, for too long. Uh, but uh, let's deal first with the, the mania, actually, that is now unfolding outside Wembley and at the train stations and in Leicester Square. Is this just boys being boys or is this something quite extraordinary that has taken grip in this country as England have progressed to this important final? Well, I think, I think it's both, George. Firstly, I would just like to say sorry, obviously, because I, I would normally on later, but uh, I could have missed the chance that football would come home. So uh, sorry about that. But, uh, but yes, no, I think it's both, actually. I think the fact is we've been cooped up now, haven't we, for about 16 months or so, and that's been a bit ridiculous. So I think it's, there's an explosion of a bit of that going on. But what I would also say is it's great the fact that England have got this far, and I think that's what we're also seeing, which is that people now feel free for the first time. And also, for the first time in a long time, this country has been unified. This uh, country is in England has been unified because we've been tearing ourselves apart, haven't we? Whether it was Brexit or, or whatever. And now we've got an opportunity to come together. And I think unashamedly so. The fact that we're also led by a bloke who looks like if he wasn't England manager, he'd be a painter decorator. The rest of them, if Declan Rice wasn't playing in midfield, he'd be delivering stuff for Amazon. And I love a bit of that. I've not heard the word wag once. We've got no David Beckhams. We've got no Jamie Redknapps. I mean, he wouldn't be playing anyway. He'd have pulled his hamstring doing a Gaviscon commercial. So it's, it's irrelevant. We've got a bunch of normal lads who are in the final of a competition. This is the first time I've been born. And we can all get behind that, George. Yes, uh, I agree with every bit of that. Uh, it, it's wag-free. It's yeah. white suit-free. Uh, yes. It's champagne Charlie-free. Uh, well, Jack Grealish looks as if he might be a bit champagne Charlie, but I think he's one of the most brilliant players I've ever seen. He's, to me, like Rodney Marsh. He's like Stan Bowles. He's, he's, he's something from another age. Uh, and I, I really hope he gets on the park tonight. But it is a group of working class lads. It, it, a good it, number it, of them black. Yes, exactly that. Exactly that. It's it, a modern it, Britain it, in a sense. Don't it is, it, this, is, this is what Britain looks like. 
It is what Britain looks like, absolutely. And don't get me wrong, I'm not going to sit here and drink the Kool-Aid and say that I think, you know, oh, isn't it so great that this is the kind of reflection of modern Britain in a sense of all of the lads who are playing tonight and every single person in the squad is there on merit. There's no positive discrimination when it comes to the England football team. It happens to be a very representative group of people. And I think when you get the likes of Jess Phillips saying like, oh, well, my four-year-old son, which obviously didn't happen, by the way, my four-year-old son asked me, why are there no players with double-barrel surnames? Well, I imagine Calvert-Lewin might have a word uh, about that or Trent Alexander-Arnold. But it's a point, which is that this, for me, feels very normal. And I think the likes of Raheem Sterling, he did make a point, as much as I would rail against the idea that Britain is institutionally racist, and there's a debate about that, I would disagree with it. However, he made a very good point, which is that when he bought a massive house for his mum, there was an article in The Sun about the fact that here's a young black man spending his money too frivolously. However, when Phil Foden did it for his dad, who likes to go carp fishing in Stockport and is white, everyone was like, what a nice guy Phil Foden is. And so actually, I think this has done more to bring this country together than otherwise. I do think as well that well, whilst you're absolutely bob on, I just don't want too much to be made about that. These are the best 11 footballers and indeed 22 footballers, however big the squad is, that this country has to offer, regardless of colour, creed, religion. Yes, but uh, because it is representative, every section of our uh, population can see themselves on the park, can identify with the squad. I've seen pictures, videos of... A hundred boys in Islamic garb watching England in their madrasa and exploding with joy as England's goal went in. I've seen Sikhs, Indians, Afro-Caribbean people dancing in the street for England. This is a truly wonderful thing. Why would anyone be churlish about it? Double-barreled names. I mean, there is actually, as you pointed out, although he's not played yet, I don't think, Calvert-Lewin, a very fine player too. Uh, but this is the British working class on the football field. What's not to love, Patrick? Yeah, it's the proper team as well. And the idea that Gareth Southgate, so I read an interesting article today about Gareth Southgate, there seems to be an implication just because he's relatively well-spoken and he's obviously white as well. And uh, I think he's from some, somewhere in Sussex, that he's, uh, he's in some way middle class. Actually, the rest of his family, apart from his parents and where he was brought up, were from kind of like the East End in London. So Gareth Southgate is actually quite working class himself as well. And the best thing that I read about him today was that in his school, which is unusual for any school that I've seen, certainly in that era, it wasn't compulsory to wear a school tie. And he was the only person in his school who consistently, even as a child, turned up in a school tie. Now, and a waistcoat, probably. I thought, yeah, under waistcoat, exactly, yeah, yeah. And he probably got expelled for that because that definitely wasn't in the school, uh, school uniform. But no, I, I think it's fantastic. And I think it's very representative and that's magnificent. I also think there's a working ethic. We Take the working class out of it. Now, there's no big time Charlies in it. Now, I'm a massive fan of, of it as a Manchester United fan, your David Beckham's, your Paul Scholes, your Wayne Rooney. There were numerous times, for example, when we got beaten by Iceland or when we drew with Algeria or frankly, literally any other time, where it looked to me like a collection of incredibly talented footballers, arguably more talented, you Frank Lampard, than what we have now, who were all playing as individuals. And what we have now is a group of people who are not just willing, but actually prefer to play as part of a team. Even if, even if, like Jack Grealish, for all the kind of 
big, which I don't agree with, by the way, for all the big time Charlie allegations that he might have against him, is perfectly willing and perfectly happy to come on for 20 minutes, do a job, come off again. And at the end of the day, you all get the same medal, George. You all get the same medal. Quite. And that's what they're after. Quite. Is anything else happening uh, in Britain? Is anything else happening in Britain? Have you heard that Matt Hancock's making a comeback? Really? So soon? So what he's done is he's, he's personally seen at least five cabinet ministers and former colleagues, as he calls them, and, uh, and he's interviewed them about whether or not he can make a comeback. Now, from what I've heard, three of those have said, Matt, you need to actually resign as an MP. So that's a resounding no. Uh, the other two of them have said, well, you need to wait uh, your time. Now, there was, there was a source close to Matt Hancock, which was Matt Hancock, who said, Matt Hancock will do a very good job as a good backbench MP. Now, my noises that I'm hearing is that he's going to have to go at the next general election. The issue is, is that I don't think he will. And so the Tory party might actively have to deselect him, which is quite interesting. Also, as an interesting aside, Gina Colodangio, who he obviously had an affair with, was pictured the other day without her wedding ring, but holding an Olivia, uh, Oliver Bonas, sorry, Olivia Bonas is the North London way of saying it, Oliver Bonas handbag, which I thought was, if I was Matt Hancock, I'd say, do you mind, do you mind ditching your ex's stuff, you know? Yeah, I'm not sure if, uh, if um, ditching the multi-millionaire Olivier Bonas for the ex-backbench MP Matt Hancock was the best move. Uh, we'll see if it lasts. What about Keir Starmer? What about uh, the uh, chief of our health service, uh, the, the head of SAGE today? At the, uh, at the tennis without a mask on. What about uh, um, Keir Starmer in a pub with no alcohol around him, no, no drinks of any kind around him without a mask on? Is all this hypocrisy beginning to break down now? Well, Keir Starmer is currently at Wembley. So Keir Starmer is right now, as we speak, at Wembley because he got two free tickets to go to Wembley. So for a person who actively came out and said that he didn't necessarily think that Wembley should be full of people, to accept two free tickets does not help with the old adage, which isn't true, but people on the right may say, oh, classic lefty always got his hand out. Well, to be fair, he was pretty quick to rip off the bloke's hand who said, you know, have two tickets to Wembley. And I think this is the issue, but it's not just the politicians, although they are the main ones because they're elected and that's why, that, why it matters. But your Piers Morgans of this world, when Piers, yeah. Morgan was saying, when Piers Morgan was saying we should all have more restrictions, he went to Antigua over Christmas with his family. He was at Wembley the other night. You've got Holly and Phil off of this morning at uh, Wimbledon. Dr. Uh, Hilary Jones, who's been at Wimbledon as well, maskless, he's openly said that we should all wear masks in public. Now, the problem that I have with this is not the fact that they're not wearing masks there. I'm not a big believer in the restrictions, so that's not my, my issue. My issue is the hypocrisy. And I think that if you're on TV every single day, there was a, uh, a poll that came out this week that said 70% of people would like restrictions to remain in place once COVID is over. Right. And it's because of people like that who they see every single day on their TV screen. Holly and Phil, you could drive a bus through them. They're sat that far apart on this morning. When they go to Wimbledon, they're next to each other posting selfies. Now, that's the issue that I have, which is that they influence people and their project fear in my, my, in my book, George. They're the kind of project fear of it all. And I think that's wrong, you know. Now, I've seen that poll uh, and other polls, uh, if true, and polls are not always true. The, the Batley uh, poll put me at 6%. I got 22%. They don't always uh, genuinely represent uh, opinion. But if true, 
Is it going to be possible for Boris Johnson to strike out boldly uh, later this month when he wanted to end uh, all these restrictions? No, I don't think so, for a few different reasons. So the fact that Matt Hancock did what he did with his top aide, and by did what he did, I mean have an affair with her, that's a massive problem. The G7 issue is a problem because they didn't have masks on there. Boris Johnson didn't have a mask on in his taxi when he came back from the semi-final, for example. On top of that, so your politicians can't tell you what to do anymore. They can't. They've lost the authority. Your celebrity figures, like your Holly and Phil's, your Dr. Hillary Jones's, your Piers Morgan's, they can't tell you what to do anymore. So your public kind of facing figures can't either. But also, the fact is there was a, a, an article today on the front of the Telegraph that 13 million people are projected now to be on, on an NHS waiting list going forward. Now, I think what's going to happen is the fact that when people realise that they can't get basic cancer treatment or they can't even get a hernia operation, they're going to start asking, well, hang on a minute, at what point do we prioritise COVID over everything else? And so no is my answer to that. I do not see how politically, publicly or rationally Boris Johnson or indeed anyone else can going forward impose any more restrictions for any longer than they already are. Well, we'll be talking to uh, Moats Medic, Dr. Ranjit Brar, uh, very shortly uh, about that. Patrick, uh, I hope you enjoy the game. I hope your team wins. Uh, but I can't wait for the premiership to start. Uh, the uh, Sancho is an exciting signing and there are all kinds of others in the pipeline. My last question to you is this. Can't we buy Jack Grealish? Yeah, well, if City don't get him first, I suppose the old adage was if Fergie was in charge, it wouldn't matter. But I think it does matter now. So uh, I would quite like to get Grealish. Uh, but, uh, but I think if we've got Sancho, I'd quite like to do them anyway. I think if Grealish might struggle at City under Guardiola when he's not the big cheese, as much as it pains me to say it, because if you buy Grealish, I think you should buy him at a club where you're going to play him all the time. You should give him the number seven, give him the, give him the glory. And I don't think he's going to get that at City. Come to United, Josh. Jack, even. Sorry. <laughs> That's my message also. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Patrick. Enjoy the game. Thanks for uh, joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Now, look at that poll. Who's got the best national anthem? Britain, 35%. Really? Russia, 24%. Really? Italy, 41%. I'm not sure I've ever heard the Italian one. I'll listen to it uh, during the break. Uh, but uh, how you can prefer the Russian national anthem, uh, the British national anthem over the Russian national anthem is complete nonsense. The Russian national anthem along with the French, incidentally, who are not even in this poll, are the most stirring national anthems of them all. And the British is undoubtedly the worst. Uh, Billy Connolly was right when he suggested the theme tune from the Archers would be a better national anthem than the dirge of God Save the Queen. Forgive me, ma'am, long life to you. It's no disrespect. Hey you, do you want to know more of what's happening in the world right now? Of course you do. But getting to the heart of the story, well, that's going to take some hard work. That's why here at the Mother of All Talk Shows, we've created that program just for you. Hosted by one of the world's most sagacious minds. Get a perspective, an education on stories from all around the world. Dissected and discussed with you. Join our debate, vote in our polls on Twitter, 
tweet a question to George or call in now to give us your perspective on the stories the rest of the world simply isn't talking about. Join the College of Knowledge where there are no tuition fees. Hosted by one of the world's greatest orators. The mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Let's make sense of the world together. Are we hurtling towards a new coronavirus crisis? Or will we just have to live with it now that most of us have got the jab? Who better to ask than Moats medic Dr. Ranjit Brar, who again very kindly has forsworn the football to join us here on the mother of all talk shows. Dr. Ranjit, uh, welcome. Uh, let's talk first of all about uh, the plans that the government has. Can they survive the rocketing rates of infection? Or are they balanced by those rocketing rates, balanced by the rocketing rates of waiting lists and other opportunity costs to the NHS? Uh, And the fact that the injections mean that we're almost certainly not going to die even if we catch it. What's your view on that? George, great to be back with you. Uh, congratulations, by the way, on your outstanding result in, in Batley in Spain. I've not Thank seen you. you since then, but that was truly magnificent. Um, perhaps we can talk about that another no, time. It's not over yet, by the way. Glad to hear it, you know, nor, nor should it be. Um, but on this question, I, you know, I'm, so I, I have friends and relatives who are on the skeptical side of the, of the COVID debate, and they're always accusing me of, um, of hyping it up. COVID was a very real disease, and it still is a very real disease if you're living in... Uh, Indonesia, if you're living in India, they're coming to the end of their way. But, you know, it, it has caused five million deaths or more probably around the world. Um, but right now in Britain, I think we have to be driven by the data and recognize what is happening now. Um, we have reached the point where over 90 percent of the population have antibodies. Um, uh, we have reached the point where two thirds of the adult population have had two Uh, doses of vaccine. Um, And if we look at the, yes, increasing rates of infection, yes, with the Delta virus, um, we can see that probably we're getting to the 30,000 cases uh, recorded a day. If we look back and see from the second wave um, of infections, uh, what was the death rate when we had that number of infections? Well, actually, it was on the 27th of December, and we had had almost 1,000 deaths on that day, uh, with an average running then at 500 and increasing. We don't have anything like that now. We have, you know, kind of average 10 and and, and the, the, rate, the rates are going up and down around that, but really very low rates. So that whereas at that time of the second wave, COVID was actually the leading cause of death in the country. Um, you know, two thirds of the hospital, well, one third of the, uh, almost half of the, of the beds nationwide uh, were filled with patients with COVID. Um, and some hospitals in the southeast at the, at the centres of the of the, of the epidemic um, were kind of two thirds full. We have, again got nothing like those rates of occupancy. We've got very few cases in hospital and very few deaths. So actually, you know, all of this is showing that, that we we have effectively uncoupled the rate of COVID infection from the worst effects of the disease. It was always a disease which was really skewed in its effect depending on age. And the vast majority of the deaths were in the over 70s, certainly the over 60s. Uh, you know, if you're over 85, then the death rate became over 10 percent, maybe 15 percent. It it's a huge rate of potential death. All of that section of the population 
who want to have the vaccine, and that's the vast majority of them, it's well over 95%, have had the vaccine. Um, so at this point, we essentially have protected the nation from COVID, including the, the, the Delta variant. And I cannot see the logic uh, anymore in, in pretending that we're using pandemic measures. The pandemic measures were very poorly used. The reason we had lockdown is because our hospitals lack capacity. Nothing has been done to address that. Billions has been given uh, in support to businesses for something else entirely, not, not the COVID pandemic, but the, the effects of uh, a global recession, which also hit us at the same time. Billions has been squandered on track and trace and isolate, which was done very poorly. But the one thing that we have done, the NHS has done, is roll out a vaccination program, which essentially has done the job. Uh, and for that reason, the population is overwhelmingly protected from the effects of COVID in the UK, not, not globally. Globally, it's still a problem. Uh, and so for me, uh, it's time to stop the pandemic measures and proceed with the, the relaxation as planned. Whether that will happen is a political matter. The Labour Party and, and seemingly the left wing so-called in the country seem to be agitating very heavily. They've got into the habit, it seems, of criticising the government for this. Um, but, but they're not really taking account of the new situation, in my opinion, George. Neither are they practising what they preach, as I just discussed with Patrick Christie's. Uh, Keir Starmer, who is uh, demanding that the restrictions uh, are kept on and on and on, is himself for the second time in a week at Wembley Stadium with uh, 70,000 people and no mask and taking selfies with strangers up close and personal uh, and many other political figures and media figures like Piers Morgan who are endlessly agitating for endless restrictions except for themselves uh, this is all breaking down at least in terms of its credibility doctor yeah well i think that's right i think people are fed up i mean if i speak to young i mean I, so i will i will follow the law but uh, you know essentially already i think you know the use of a mask is a is a is of no is of no value I mean, anyway you know at the time we had no protection against coronavirus and there were rocketing rates of infection, it was a clear and obvious thing we do, which we had some marginal research to show may have a societal impact if universally adopted. You know, there were those who said that they were totally against it. I thought, look, we've got nothing else. This will reduce the rate of droplet uh, spread. It's, we, we, we know that. Therefore, it'll have a marginal impact on the R rate in addition to all the so other social distancing measures. So fine, let's adopt masks. But now, now that really, if all of the those who are most vulnerable are protected, and essentially, we have reached that point in this country, not in other countries. You know, if in Indonesia they have a, they have a vaccination program that's reached five percent of the population, of course they they haven't protected their population. It's an ongoing issue for them. So the, globally, we haven't solved this. We haven't solved problems of global inequality. The poor nations don't have access to health in general, and including protection against COVID as well as many other things. Of course, we've not solved those problems. But in this country now, having rolled out the vaccination program successfully. It's um, counterproductive to agitate for measures which have do have a corollary of you know, negative consequences, you know, socially and, and, and in terms of other medical conditions, as, you know, the lockdown skeptics have pointed out previously. Then they were wrong. Now the balance of risk has changed. And essentially, they're, they're right, in, in my opinion. It's, it is high time to open up. And, and politi politicians who just want to score points, you know, by in nature being opposition to uh, any measure that the government propose, are going to put themselves wrong sometimes. You know, it's not a question of, uh, 
uh, of uh, being supporting one political ideology or another. It's a question of looking at the data and, and, and following yeah. common sense, really. When the facts change, so do my opinions. Uh, that would seem uh, uh, axiomatic. Now, moving uh, on, if I may, uh, I read today that the next boss of the NHS, your next boss as a surgeon, as a doctor, may well be the guy that used to run Amazon. Um, that seems apt somehow, given the trajectory of privatization and profit-taking uh, that they have in mind for the health service. Uh, as you say, George, I mean, part of the, so over a 40-year period, there's been a prolonged and sustained attack on the concept of uh, a national health service that, that really is free uh, at the point of use um, from the cradle to the grave. Um, many measures have been introduced, uh, which have facilitated the ongoing privatization. And really that carve up is reaching a high state of uh, almost completion, really, where funding comes from the government, but it will go into the private sector. It will be for us to appeal to the private sector to get healthcare. Healthcare will be rationed. One of those very key steps was to remove the senior um, clinicians from the point of really managing the service. And we saw that during the pandemic. It's not senior NHS clinicians who are running the response to the pandemic. Government are giving out 10, 20, 30, 40 billion dollar contracts directly to their cronies, sometimes smaller, sometimes just a few hundred million to their actual friends and publicans, but sometimes 30, 40 billion dollar contracts for certain tests, all the rest of it, not being directed by the science in terms of the actual bodies of clinicians organized in the NHS, you know, and, and that's the same now for the entire direction of the service. So that, you know, what they've done is introduce something they call the revolving door between business and the NHS. Gordon Brown was very into this. Tony Blair was into this. They talked endlessly about the mantra of the market being the only driver of efficiency. Uh, so the internal market and removing clinicians from leading the NHS were two of the very key steps that they did from actually stopping us from having controls. So huge amounts of money goes in, but I'm afraid the NHS is fleeced by everyone. You know, they, they came for the cleaners and they came for the uh, the porters, the the cooks. The, the you know, so logistics companies run all of the staffing and now they're coming for core medical services increasingly and we've seen the absolute carve up and, and the latest white paper that we won't have time i'm sure to talk about today but we've mentioned before matt hancock's white paper is the culmination of that when actually we're going to see the u.s private insurance companies having the overriding control of healthcare and social care budgets uh, and i'm sure that you know a scion of the amazon uh, a school is only going to further facilitate that. It, it's gone beyond an individual appointment now. This is a systemic problem, uh, which really can only be resisted by a sustained campaign from working people themselves who are the ultimate people who will depend upon the service and find soon, uh, as we're already finding with huge waiting lists, which are not just about the pandemic, they're about under capacity and privatization, that that service won't be there for us when we need it, George. Yeah. I mean, I expect this from the Conservatives. They wear what they are on their sleeve. What does surprise me is I'm not feeling any opposition to this, either in Parliament from the so-called Labour opposition or, frankly, from the health service unions. I mean, I, I lived and was active in the great struggles of the late 1970s when health service unions, uh, NUPE in particular, NUPE no longer with us, 
Cozy, C-O-H-S-E, no longer with us. Nalgo, no longer with us. But all these unions, white collar, formerly moderate unions, really made you feel, made the people feel what was wrong in uh, public uh, services, in particular the health service. Have these unions just given up or are they uh, agitating about these things? I'm just not hearing it. You know, George, there are, you know, grassroots campaigners who are deeply worried about the fate of their own hospitals, um, uh, you know, in, in Batley and Spen uh, is a perfect example. They've got the downgrading of their local hospital. Um, Bob Gill, a friend of mine who campaigns in his area in southeast London, they've got downgrading of their local hospital. So there's downgrading and centralisation. Part of PFI has been to um, reduce the actual bed capacity. This is continuously happening. And there are groups of citizens grassroots campaigners all over the, the country actually who are deeply concerned about what's happening there are nurses campaigning for an, a, a reasonable uh, rate of pay rise if we if we are unable to sustain nurses on a living wage that allows them to raise families and carry on coming to work we'll lose nurses you know and then we'll eventually have no service so there are campaigners but what's not happening is they're not uh, joining up and linking up with any considerable voice. And that's overwhelmingly, as you say, because actually, traditionally, the working people of Britain have always looked to the Labour Party, thinking that the Labour Party will be their saviour, the person who's going to ride in on a white horse and sort all these problems out. You know, when, when I was very young and I used to, I've been on demonstrations as a child and people used to chant Maggie, 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 out, 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 because they were sure the next Labour government would come in and sort things out. That Labour government was Tony Blair's government who proved to be very much, you know, more of the same, but with a red rosette instead of a blue rosette. And they introduced PFI and further privatization. They brought Sir Simon Stevens, who was the agent really of the United Health, the American Health Insurance Company, deep into the NHS. And so Labour now in opposition, again, don't really, even under Corbyn, when Corbyn would like to have changed his things, he didn't have any support from his party. He was actively and systematically scuppered really in any proposal he had that, you know, varied from the mainstream narrative, including on health. So he didn't really have a separate health policy. Uh, and so even when I was involved in the, uh, the junior doctors strike at the time, the leaders who were the so-called left-wing leaders came in uh, and they very much said, what we need to do is campaign for a Jeremy Corbyn government and leadership. So there's a constant, everyone looks to Labour Party will come in, they'll, they'll be voted into office and they'll sort things out. They have no plans of doing so. And actually it's Labour's connection to these campaigns, uh, many, many health campaigns, that stops them going beyond those limits of what would actually be effective action, which is actually to build a, an active campaign of local workers and residents and hospital workers in defence of their service. And that never happens. Um, and, and similarly, I'm afraid to say that the, even the health workers unions at a leadership level are intimately tied with Labour Party. Now, the left wing have always used that as saying this is the this shows that the Labour Party is a party of working people. But actually, the reverse has become the case. It's the influence of the Labour Party stopping unions from fighting, you know, and mobilising actively that stops them from doing the job that they should be doing. And of course, the general public to a large extent and of course, the profession to a large extent 
simply don't have this information as a result. The media are, are absolutely involved in this kind of conspiracy of silence. They don't ask difficult questions. They don't expose what's going on. And then there's general political complicity from Tory and Labour alike in that process. And therefore, where is the opposition coming from? There are small voices in the wilderness. And until the working people realise that they're being actively betrayed by the party that they've looked to to sort themselves out and start to campaign for a different political force um, that can really enable uh, these individual voices to come together and form a mass campaign because it would have overwhelming support, of course, to save the NHS from these changes. Um, we, we won't make significant progress, George. It's uh, salami, uh, death by a, by a thousand slices. Thank you very much, Dr. Ranjit Bra, for joining us again on the mother of all talk shows. Let's take a call uh, from Malcolm in Edinburgh. Uh, go ahead, Malcolm. Uh, George, thanks for taking my call. A very interesting conversation I had there with the doctor. And, yeah. and, and I do have a question for you. But um, on the back of what you were just talking about there, uh, I believe that there was a case last week where the NHS, uh, through preferred suppliers, bought a microwave for £850 that was available around the corner for £50 at Tesco. Wow. Now, on a personal note as well, is like, my GP took me off my medication, which I like, which the NHS has charged £2,000 a month for my medication. I buy it from India off-label for £8 a month. Wow. Now, one of the things, Jerry Corbyn did say he was going to set up a, a system, maybe you're correct me on this one, George, I'm not sure, but he was going to actually say, let's take the pharmaceutical money-making machine and do generic drugs... Mm for the people at a reasonable cost. I don't know if he was, but if he was, he should be commended. If he wasn't, he should be criticized because the cost to the NHS of essential pharmaceutical products uh, is simply enormous. In fact, after the slice that's taken by the uh, interest wallas on the PFIs, uh, that would be the second biggest expense. And it is absurd that we did not nationalize the pharmaceutical industry at the same time we nationalized the health service. I mean, not to do so was to give the private, uh, privately owned pharmaceutical big pharma giants a license to print money, Malcolm. Well, now, George, I'm going to say something to you, and I respect for you in this show, which you're doing fantastic with. I'm not going to mention the name because you could get censored for it. Okay. Is okay. I'm going to ask you a question, okay? And, like, um, with the COVID situation and with, obviously, with what goes on with that, in Peru, they had a... George, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not going to go there because I wouldn't even mention it on your program out of respect for yourself. But I think the pharmaceutical industry is taking the piss. Yeah, well, no doubt uh, at all about that and always has. Now, Malcolm, you had a point on national anthems, didn't you? Well, yes, I was, it's, my, it's my point to you, George. There's only one country in Europe that doesn't have words to the national anthem. What country is that? That's my question to you. That is a very good question. I don't know the answer. Do you want me to tell you or are you yes. waiting for your audience tell to me, tell you? Tell me, tell me. It's actually Spain, and then I, I really? watched them standing up to it, and it's yeah. quite interesting, but it's the only country in... So do you, what do you do? Do you, do you hum along with it or what? 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Well, no, but you look at them and they just stand proud and they stand tall. Yeah, they don't take yeah. a knee, by the way. They, they yeah. stand proud and they stand tall. Who needs words? Uh, I mean, the, the words of the British national anthem and the words of the Scottish pretender are so cringeworthy that uh, I pity those that have to sing them. Malcolm, thanks uh, very much uh, for that call. You know, and it's a very, thank you for, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your show, Gigi. Great, great debate, great. And I'm Scottish, I'm very passionate about what's happening there, you know. I had a great mom, she was Scottish, Mary McLeod. She taught me well. She taught me well at everything, including golf. I love Scotland and I love the Scottish food. It's great food, I said to Melania, you know, haggis, look at that. What's more than more Scottish than that? Me, I am that haggis. She said, what, thin-skinned and full of crap? Paul Kitching uh, says, let's face it, the Italians love a cracking tune. See Rossini, Verdi, Puccini, even in the fascist period. The anthem Giovanezza is a powerful tune. And Robert Ryan says, Italy, the UK national anthem is as dull as dishwater. And into the bargain, it's about time England got their own for the football. And uh, uh, <laughs> Mr. GB... MGB uh, says Britain, but one thing I would not do is boo anyone else's at a football game. That's just not sportsmanship. I agree with that. Uh, Neil Alexander says, France, La Marseillaise, have you not seen Casablanca? Indeed so. Art form, the heart, says Italy's is fun and more celebratory. No clue about the lyrics, however. And Marley says, the Welsh is the best if sung with the harmonies. However, the French, Italian, and Russian are up there, as is the Dutch, which is a beautifully written piece of music. Are you serious? My wife is Dutch. I must consult her, but I'm struggling to associate a beautifully written piece of music with the Dutch. Uh, but anyway, the poll is still going. Uh, who's got the best national anthem? Britain, 35%, up one. Russia, 25%, no change. Italy, 40%, down one. 1,360, one of you have voted. The rest of you can do so now on my Twitter feed. Let's cross the Atlantic and talk with the one and only Rachel Blevins. Rachel, welcome back to the show. It's wonderful, uh, as always, to see you. I must say those flowers are lasting well, <laughs> behind you, <laughs> they're beautiful, yeah. uh, as always. Um, I, I've been, of course, broadcasting every night on RT America, and mainly uh, we've been talking about what, on the face of it, is a very major climb down, humiliation, certainly defeat uh, for the United States military in Afghanistan. Your people spent so much of your young men and women's blood. 
so much of your country's treasure was spent in overthrowing and keeping out of power for two decades people who will be back in power 10 minutes after you've gone. And the scuttling out in the middle of the night, literally leaving the lights on and running, uh, is such a national uh, humiliation. It's redolent of, uh, of the last days of Saigon. Redolent also, I should say, uh, of uh, the Russian withdrawal from, Soviet rather, withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's all accompanied by the same rhetoric. We've trained the people that we're leaving uh, behind. They can hold their position when everyone knows neither the South Vietnamese government nor the Najibullah government in Afghanistan that the Soviets left in charge were remotely capable of withstanding the onslaught. And neither is the current regime in Afghanistan. Is there much talk about all this in the U.S.? Well, quite possibly one of the biggest tragedies in all of this is the fact that the talk is now looking at the Biden administration and saying congratulations to them. They finally ended the war in Afghanistan after nearly two decades. I mean, that is really the media's perspective of it. And it becomes such a disaster because it becomes even more clear that the United States government has not learned from its actions in this country. I mean, you're talking about 20 years of spending tens of billions of dollars every single year to continue a military occupation, to quite literally build new buildings and then blow them up as they go along. And you look back 20 years ago at the Bush administration saying that they were going to launch a war against terrorism. Well, clearly they didn't defeat terrorism in any kind, and clearly they actually made the situation worse. And yes, exactly as you said, you talk about a government that said that they were going to go in there and defeat the Taliban. Uh, yeah, not only has that not happened, but the Taliban is more powerful than ever. They have more land than ever before. And now the United States is kind of backing away, all while knowing that the government that they propped up and installed in this country stands no chance against the Taliban. And at the same time, it's also important to note here that the United States is not ending this war completely, and they're not completely giving up control in the parts of this country that they can still hold on to, because they are leaving at least 650 troops around the U.S. Embassy in the capital. And at the same time, there hasn't been much conversation about the nearly 20,000 defense contractors that are remaining in Afghanistan and are essentially helping to prop up the government and the military there. So it is a disaster all around. And quite frankly, we should be looking at trials right now for all of the U.S. officials who have committed war crimes in this country and have walked free over the last two decades. Yeah, including crimes against your own people, sending your uh, own military personnel into a war of choice. Uh, that has achieved uh, precisely nothing. I've got to tell you, Rachel, I know Afghanistan very well. Uh, neither the 600 troops around the embassy nor the thousands of so-called contractors, mercenaries, uh, are going remotely to be capable of holding off the onslaught whenever the Taliban decide to launch it. And they may be canny about that. I agree with your take that all of this shows extraordinary levels of negligence, stupidity, cupidity. But there is an alternative conspiracy theory. I don't sign up to it myself, but let me put it to you. That the US government 
knows that the Taliban will be back in power and it intends to use the Taliban and its Al-Qaeda ally if uh, that ally comes back in any substantial way. And it is extraordinary how these people managed to move around. I was wondering how all these Chinese uh, terrorists got to Syria, for example. Uh, did they take, uh, you know, budget airlines or what? Uh, uh, if Al-Qaeda returns to Afghanistan in a big way, if ISIS emerges in Af Afghanistan in a big way, what about the possibility that the U.S. will use these elements to cause problems across the border in Tajikistan, but per perhaps particularly in uh, Iran, uh, but also in China and also in Pakistan? You could see the possibility of that, couldn't you? You know, it's interesting that you're talking about this as a possible conspiracy theory, because when we're talking about these theories, it is based on exactly what the United States has done in this region, especially over the last two decades. I mean, you just look at the rise of ISIS. We're talking about a time where the, the Obama administration specifically was saying, oh, yeah, we'll get out of Afghanistan, we'll get out of Iraq, of Iraq. and at the same time, all of a sudden, they start talking about wanting to overthrow the government in Syria. And then out of nowhere, you have this group that quite literally comes out of nowhere driving Toyota trucks. You have the U.S. saying, uh-oh, we accidentally dropped supplies in this area where this new group, ISIS, was able to get to it. I mean, all of these little things that happen, yes, they fuel theories like that that make you wonder what is really at the heart of this. Because what we've learned in the last 20 years is that the United States knew going into Afghanistan that they were not going to take this country and create the beacon of democracy. They knew that there was no war to be won here. And so it really makes you wonder what is the ulterior motive there when you've had Bush, Obama, and Trump all saying, we are going to end this war. And then magically Biden walks in the door and now all of a sudden it's really over yet yeah, it makes you wonder what they're going to allow to happen in that country and also what they're going to do with those troops that they're taking out of the country because there's always a plan at the end of the day and you know when you have the u.s in a place already openly saying that it plans to increase tensions with countries like china and like russia it really makes you wonder what their plan is when they say that they are going to make these big moves because at the end of the day the u.s looks absolutely ridiculous here whether they stay in afghanistan whether they leave it i mean they, they really don't have themselves in a good place. No, uh, it certainly wasn't all for women's rights because the yeah. current Afghan government has done virtually nothing for women's rights and all of women's rights will be taken away when the Taliban returns to power. Uh, it certainly wasn't to uh, block the heroin trade uh, because mm -hmm. actually the heroin trade has, if you'll forgive the pun, bloomed and blossomed uh, in Afghanistan while your country and mine have been in control of it. Uh, it uh, certainly wasn't for democracy because the Afghan government now is the most corrupt government on the earth, the brother of the previous president, the brother of the previous president, was captured at the airport in the UAE carrying almost a billion dollars in cash in Dubai. Uh, so if it wasn't about any of these things, you've got to ask what, what was it about? Now, either it's a James Bond conspiracy 
or it's an Austin Powers series of calamities. I lead to the latter. I don't know about you. You know, when I look back at all of these U.S. officials that have gone through and that have sold these lies of what they're doing in Afghanistan, it's hard to think about the fact that we have allowed this to happen for so long, whether you compare it to one movie or another. I mean, we look back at former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, who passed away just a few weeks ago. And it's crazy to think about the fact that when you look back at his whole life, his legacy, all of the lies that he blatantly told, all of the war crimes that he supported, the fact that, you know, people would ask him, hey, wait a second, do you regret any of this? And he said no, because he never had to face any consequences for it. And I think at the end of the day, that's what the U.S. is finally maybe possibly coming up to, is consequences for their actions, blowback for this two-decade-long war they have launched for all of the lies that they have told to the American people and to the entire world. I mean, these actions that they have committed, these crimes that they have committed, do not come without consequences. And, you know, we're getting to the point where we're seeing that more and more as we move forward. Rachel Blevins, as always, a pleasure to see and hear from you on the mother of all talk shows. Thanks for uh, joining us. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Ignition. Liftoff. Liftoff. 30 minutes after the hour. We need to uh, acclimatise the public uh, for the introduction of extraterrestrials because, come to the conclusion at this point, if they're going to come, they are going to come soon. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, they actually saw the softer land in front of them or pass by in New York or go overhead. It went in front of my eyes up and turned into what looked like a star way up in the sky. They said the same line that you just made, and it was amazing. It is an awful waste of space if, if we are all if that there is. If we are all that there is, exactly. Have you ever seen any of these phenomena? I have seen um, energy entities. One looked like a massive jellyfish. The other one looked like a massive centipede. Well, you had me up to that point. Now I just think you're stark raving mad. Now, everybody knows the importance of the Battle of Stalingrad, which turned the tide in the Second World War against Nazi Germany, but not so many as should remember the Battle of Kursk, the greatest tank battle in military history. The Nazis lost a staggering 2,900 tanks at the Battle of Kursk, and the Red Army victory there opened the gates to Berlin. And it was victory after victory after victory for the Red Army after that. Now, everybody knows what the United States colonizers did to the uh, Native American people, everybody knows or should know uh, what the English colonizers did in Australia uh, and to a slightly lesser extent, but still in New Zealand, uh, to a total extent in Tasmania, where every last Tasmanian was wiped out by the colonists uh, 
But for a long time, Canada, the nicer, gentler, kinder North American state, uh, got a slight buy on this. Uh, they were held to be nicer, kinder, gentler people. They were assumed, therefore, to have treated the Native American residents of Canada before the colonization. They were imagined to have treated them better, at least, than the neighbors to the south of them. This has been chipped away over recent years, uh, but it is now accelerating into a gigantic scandal following the discovery of literally thousands of unmarked graves containing the remains of Native American children that had been taken from their families and put in state uh, institutions, usually run by the church, I'm sorry to say in most cases by the Catholic Church, but other churches too. And when they died, uh, they were of such little consequence uh, that they were tossed, literally tossed into unmarked graves, unconsecrated ground, uh, and uncounted, and certainly not accounted for to their parents from whom they had been forcibly taken. The number of dead children in these church institutions is growing almost by the day, and they've only just begun looking with the proper x-ray equipment. The man that has been in the lead on uncovering this story is my colleague, the very, very able Alex Mihailovich of RT America, who joins us now. Alex, uh, this is a melancholy story to be at the, at the lead, in the lead on, uh, but at least uh, most people in Britain, at least, uh, only know about this because of you, because of the reports that you have done for RT America on it. But for those remaining uh, people who don't yet know, summarize the scale and importance of this scandal, will you please? Well, George, I think it's just as important for Canadians. I mean, this is not something that we learned in school. So for many of us, uh, this is the first time hearing of this, especially the new Canadians who've come here in the past decade or so. Uh, this is uh, a situation that has really tugged at the hearts of most Canadians and, and really the minds as well. This is, uh, you know, Canada the good, as you were saying, and now uh, we don't look as good as we used to. Now, th this history is uh, something that has, has really stained what we believed as Canadians Canada is. I mean, there, there have been stories about this in the past. But I think it's really hitting home this time around. So we're looking at the possibility of up to 6,000 unmarked graves. 150,000 Native children were put through these schools called residential schools that were primarily run by the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, and the Anglican. But when I say primarily, primarily, I am uh, sticking to the Catholic Church. Over 50% of them were run by that church. 130 schools from coast to coast in Canada. Uh, so you're looking at uh, many of these sites that have not even yet been uh, investigated, uh, possibly having more bodies there. So what we've seen up to now is over a thousand and the number just keep, seems to be increasing all the time. Now, personally, I've heard of this back in 2004 for the first time when I was a rookie reporter 
up in a town called Sault Ste. Marie, which is about 700 kilometers outside of Toronto, uh, moving north of here, northwest. Uh, there's a school called Algoma University there, and one of their main buildings was a residential school. Now, I had many of many natives, native friends that I made during my time up there, uh, primarily of the Ojibwe First Nation called Garden River, which is uh, pretty much kitty-quartered right up to the school. And they say uh, in the back of the school, the stories were there are unmarked graves, there are many children back there, and you can stand on the soil and you knew that something was wrong at that site. Well, it seems that they're going to start also looking in and investigating in that area as well to see what was going on. But it was absolutely horrific what these children had to endure. Uh, there was sexual abuse, there was physical abuse, there was mental abuse. And many of these people are alive to this day. You have to remember, these schools operated from 19, uh, 1863 to 1996. So this is relatively new. That's when the last uh, school closed. So this is not some distant Canadian history. This is during most of our lifetimes that this actually went down. And for the fact of the matter was, most of us were not aware that this was happening. Now, these children were uh, effectively taken to be deracinated uh, for their culture to be stripped from them, even their language uh, stripped from them. They were not allowed to speak their native language, nor uh, dress or dance in their uh, original way. Uh, this is a cultural genocide we're talking about here. Well, absolutely. And in 2015, that's exactly what the, the country, the federal government here in Canada declared, a cultural genocide. So uh, we know that that happened and they were, Christianity was forced upon these children. They were not allowed to speak their native tongues. So yes, this was, as uh, some people described it, killing the Indian inside these children. Uh, they were ripped out of their parents' arms uh, to the point where some of these, uh, the parents themselves would sit outside of these residential schools hoping just to get a glimpse of their own children. It was absolutely, absolutely dramatic. It was, it was frightful what was happening to these kids. And we're still, like, to this day, we have to look at the Canadian system here. There are thousands of, 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 thousands of Native kids that are not living with their families, that are, are enduring right now what some are calling massive human rights abuses. So if we're talking anything along the line of reparations, this is where we have to start. We have to start with these children, ensuring that they don't go through what their forefathers went through. We have to make sure that treaties that we've had with First Nations in this country that have been uh, basically shunned and pushed aside, they need to be respected. If, if we as Canadians can look at ourselves in the mirror, this has to happen. We have to be able to live with the fact that our forefathers did something that is absolutely despicable, and now's the time to make things right. And I think these are two very important steps in the right direction, and especially taking care of these Native children and maybe giving them clean drinking water would be a nice thing too. We have many First Nations in this country that don't have the simple right of clean drinking water. So there is a push here. There are pushes happening, but at the same time, uh, simultaneous, simultaneously, the Canadian government is suing some of these people that are trying to push through the court system and to, or I should say fighting these people that are trying to push through the court system to get the reparations and to make what went wrong right as, as much as possible. I mean, what, what was it all about, Alex? Uh, presumably, I mean, one of the most haunting phrases I heard uh, in, uh, in one of your reports, one of our discussions on RT America about this, was that uh, these children were held to have no soul and therefore could be disposed of as effectively subhumans uh, when they died. How did they die? 
What was the cause of all these deaths? Well, George, they were seen as, as savages. And uh, basically, you know, there, there's a famous line. I'm going to ad lib a bit here. Uh, it, it basically says that the only thing that by taking these kids and educating them on First Nations close to their homes, close to their parents, all you're doing is creating savages that can read. So, I mean, that's really the extent of this. It's, it's absolutely horrific that this type of language even existed. Uh, what happened to these kids, as I mentioned, sexual abuse, physical abuse. Uh, they were even did, uh, some, of the, some of the First Nations, there were even tests on these children to gauge how hunger affects children and how starvation affects children. So they weren't seen as people. Bottom line, the Canadian government and the masters of the time did not see these people as people. And that I think is the, the biggest shock for all of us here that, that that actually existed in this country. I remember my father telling me he, he came here in 1950. So he uh, learned from a lot of the people that were much older than him at the time and that went through that and witnessed what it was like for the First Nations people. And he told me a story of one man who I was saying that they used to hunt Indians to get five bucks a head, five dollars a head at the post office. And when I say a head, I mean a head, a head of a person. So this is, uh, you know, this could have been some type of uh, myth at the time. I'm not sure. I, I have not find any, found anything to, to collaborate that. But at the same time, uh, this is the type of, of basically attitude or, and behavior. It's a kind of fascism. It's a kind it of fascism, fascism Alex, isn't it? Absolutely. And to this day, you're going to see this type of discrimination. And maybe, well, let's, let's tone it down a bit. And maybe not this type of discrimination, but definitely discrimination against Native people and Native communities throughout this country, primarily if you look in the prairie provinces. It's, uh, it's a shock uh, to uh, non-Canadians. You make the point it's a shock to Canadians too. But Canada does have a nice, kind uh, reputation in the world, at least by contrast to its southern neighbor. Uh, was that all a myth, too? Well, I mean, it's kind of uh, <laughs> difficult when you look at that contrast. I mean, it really is apples to oranges. Canada is a very different country than the United States of America. And uh, yes, our, our laws and our ways of life are quite different. Even though we're right next door to them, we do speak the same language. There are similarities, maybe cultural similarities when it comes to pop culture and such. But we do live differently here, as you know, with our healthcare system. And I think we'd like to think of ourselves as kinder uh, than, than the sort of American approach of the Wild West and, you know, guns ablaze and moving forward. Canadians do see themselves differently, but at the same time, and what, exactly what you mentioned now, when we look at the global community, well, we can't uh, keep pushing our hypocrisy, can we? So when we're looking at the Uyghurs of China, when our prime minister says something against China about something that is unproven, well, China, it's pretty easy for China to say back or, or to, to rebuke with something that is proven. We know that this happened to the native people in Canada. The claims that we're making against other nations don't necessarily have the same type of backing. What happens next, finally, uh, Alex? Uh, I saw the uh, Prime Minister of Canada, uh, very sincere, uh, at least on the face of it. Uh, are they going to make reparation? How can they make reparation? for all of this? You know, it's basically, I think Canadians have had enough of apologies and they want to see things get done. Uh, I think it's starting with the Catholic Church. Uh, the, 
let's say one more apology. Let's add one more apology, which would be nice from the Catholic Church, from the Pope. Uh, we haven't heard that yet to the people, to the First Nations people of this country. Uh, second of all, the Catholic Church promised uh, back about 15 years ago that they were going to uh, give $25, $25 million in reparations to First Nations people that were affected by residential schools. Uh, that never happened. Maybe $4 million of that happened. $21 million still has not gone through. Meanwhile, they've invested about $300 million in building new churches in this country. So you see that there's something unfair there. When it comes to the Canadian government, it's about it's simply let's respect the treaties that were signed with these people. Let's bring those back. Let's respect these treaties and let's make sure that the Indigenous people that live in this nation today and the children are taken care of properly. That does not necessarily mean throwing money at First Nations because as we know, First Nations also have their political problems. Uh, sometimes that money, if it goes to a First Nation, it doesn't get to the people that actually need the money. So that has to be taken care of in a, in a respectful way, but at the same time, there has to be some sort of accountability and there has to be some sort of accounting for where this money goes and that it's actually reaching the right people that need it the most. I said finally, but one question arises from that, if I may. Um, where are the uh, First Nation people, the native people? Uh, I've been to Canada many times. I've done speaking tours across the country. I'm not sure I ever saw or met uh, a Native American there, not knowingly anyway. Are they literally on, on reservations or what? Oh, one of my best friends in the world is Ojibwe, and he happens to be a cameraman for one of the biggest networks here in Toronto. Uh, his wife, who's also native, half Métis, uh, she's a nurse in a Toronto hospital. Uh, these people are very accomplished. They've, they've pushed their way through, even with the, the barriers that were set up against them. So you do have a, a quite a large native population in the cities such as Toronto, more so if you're looking in cities such as Winnipeg and in central Canada. Then you have the reservation. So you leave Toronto, you drive about uh, 80 kilometers out of there, or even closer. There are reservations set up all around Ontario and all throughout the country. Uh, the key here is, is respecting it as native land. So as a journalist, whenever I've gone in, I've gone to the band council, I talk to them first to get permission that I can film and, and interview people on their territory, on their land. And uh, this is, it's sprinkled throughout the whole nation. And there, there's a lot of territory, especially in the province of Quebec. They say it, it's, it's a massive chunk of some people say one to two thirds of the province are actually native land. So that, that, that's the thing. I mean, we, we have to work with these people. We have to work with the people, the First Nations, the First Nations. I think that's per particularly important to hear. They were here first. So let's do our part now. It's, we know that things aren't going to change. We're not going anywhere. So let's work together and let's make sure that they get what they deserve. And let's make sure that they get a piece of this pie and that they get the respect they deserve from the, from the treaties that we've signed in the past and from any agreements that we're going to sign now or in the future. We have to respect that and we have to put these people, I believe, on a pedestal. Well said and well done, Alex Mihailovich. Thank you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Here's the poll. Did the Taliban win in Afghanistan? A, yes. B, no. Let's hear uh, from you on that. Luckily, he's a sage that we've gotten hold of on this evening on the mother of all talk shows. Chris, welcome back uh, on the moat. Sorry we struggled to reach you earlier. Um, I wanted to ask you what's going on in Haiti and whether the United States is complicit in the murder of the Haitian president and the wounding of his 
lady wife. If you're able to help us understand what's happened, we'd be grateful. Well, they have created the chaos in Haiti uh, as they have, uh, in, a, in a similar way, created the same kind of chaos in countries like Honduras. Uh, the United States has uh, basically two major policy goals in Haiti. One, uh, whatever government is in power uh, will never be allowed to build an alliance with Cuba and Venezuela. And secondly, whatever government is in power will never be able to thwart the pillaging by U.S. business interests in Haiti. Uh, that, those are the prerequisites. And anything else that government does, uh, including creating the kind of failed state that Haiti has become, uh, is uh, considered collateral damage from U.S. interests. Uh, so, yes, the United States, we don't really know who went in yet to uh, Mossad's uh, house and killed him, um, uh, but the uh, unraveling of Haiti as a functioning system uh, has been by design. And you see uh, Honduras would be a good example uh, again, uh, lawless gang violence, uh, wanton pillaging by an elite that is blessed and beholden uh, to the United States. Uh, and, of course, that's why they uh, have asked for the acting interim president, whoever he is, the interim prime minister, has asked for U.S. intervention. It, I mean, this was not a lone gunman. This was not a, a lone wolf. Uh, this was a highly organized and large commando of people, uh, virtually none of whom were Haitian, and therefore who came into the country from somewhere, and then uh, sought refuge in, of all the embassies, in the Taiwan embassy, a puppet uh, government, a puppet regime, of the United States. Suspicious, no? Yeah, I mean, mercenaries for hire, especially out of countries like Colombia, uh, are not uh, uncommon. And uh, these are uh, 17 ex-members, apparently, of Colombia's military. Uh, but they were probably hired at the behest of whatever warring faction wanted the president removed. And and wanted to take power. But these are kind of internecine, almost tribal battles, uh, which the United States uh, doesn't really have any problem with as long as whoever is in power uh, caters to those two iron rules that can't be broken. No alliances with popular governments, particular Cuba and Venezuela, and no uh, interference with the want and pillage by uh, global corporations. Uh, so uh, Haiti's deterioration is something that has been long uh, in the making. Uh, the United States uh, has, uh, I mean, going all the way back to the occupation in the 1930s, uh, essentially uh, governed Haiti as a protectorate. And in a few cases like Aristide, where you actually saw some kind of resistance, those governments were gotten rid of. Uh, I did read that the Clintons had been heavily involved in Haiti. Are they still... I don't know whether the Clintons are still involved, but uh, the uh, ruling party, which got its start in 2012, 
was essentially put in place by, uh, at the time, the State Department under Hillary Clinton uh, and uh, the United Nations Special Envoy and co-chair of the Interim Haitian Reconstruction Commission, which happened to be Bill Clinton. Uh, so uh, you have what they call the core group, France, Canada, Brazil, and the European Union and the OAS, the Organization of American States, uh, that essentially dictates who has power and who doesn't. So, um, yes, there is a, a strong Clinton involvement in terms of the modern uh, configurations of power within Haiti. Now, let's switch uh, continents, if we may. Uh, the week has been marked by uh, what I described earlier as scenes reminiscent of the last days of Saigon uh, with the satrapies of the foreign occupation power in Afghanistan scrambling onto aircraft, running over international borders to escape, soldiers deserting and sweeping gains, territorial gains by the insurgent forces, in this case, uh, the Taliban. Uh, on the face of it, that's quite a humiliating end to 20 years of American-led war in the country. Yet, talking to Rachel Blevins earlier, it doesn't seem to have been treated like that in the U.S. media. Why? Because the war has long, like the conflicts in Iraq or anywhere else, is just not covered. It's not, uh, almost rarely makes an appearance on the news media. Uh, those soldiers and Marines that are there are uh, from, uh, uh, they're not conscripted, they're uh, uh, it's the volunteer army and the mercenaries, so it's uh, essentially confined to a very small demographic of the American public, which is an economic distress. Uh, so I think we checked out, certainly the U.S. media checked out of covering Afghanistan a long time ago. Um, and there is a kind of exhaustion with I mean, 20 years uh, of conflict. Uh, but yes, you're right. It has almost, I mean, we've lost the war. That's That's what's happened. It's uh, the Taliban controls 85%, uh, but even at, at the height of American presence, the Taliban controlled about 70% of Afghanistan. And unlike Iraq, most of the Afghan population lives in rural areas, not in urban centers. So uh, the only reason I think the war was perpetuated is because it was quite profitable to certain arms contractors and uh, defense industry uh, concerns. Uh, but there's a, there was, oh, I think the last few years has been a deep cynicism within the military itself. But yes, it's uh, kind of ended with a whimper, not a bang. Yeah, it, it is kind of, kind of remarkable as, as to how unnoticed uh, the withdrawal is. Unless, of course, there's a plan B. And I put this earlier to Rachel. It's a conspiracy theory, uh, but it's not an outlandish one. What if the U.S. now intends to use... Uh, the very same Islamist fanatics uh, that it's supposed to be fighting around the world against Afghanistan's neighbors. China, Iran, high on the list of American targets, now have an uncomfortable neighbor again. Well, we know that there was an arming and empowering of radical jihadists in Syria, uh, because it was believed that uh, these jihadists would serve the interests of U.S. Uh, hegemony in the region by attacking 
the Assad regime in Damascus. Uh, so yes, there's 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 long been uh, these collusions. I mean, remember going all the way back to the war with the Soviets. Who was it that created uh, the radical jihadists? It was the ISI uh, in Pakistan, which funneled billions of, I think it was $9 billion, I don't know the final figure, billions of U.S. dollars, but to support uh, not, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the most extreme elements, uh, because uh, for Pakistan, the all issue was always about India. They never wanted a country, uh, Afghanistan, to be ruled by any faction that might be, make an alliance with India. So that's why uh, the jihadists were groomed and picked, including Osama bin Laden. So, you, no, that's not far-fetched at all. There's a constant almost shifting of sides, and I think Syria is a good example. So many of the uh, operatives who ha- were in Iraq attacking American soldiers simply migrated to Syria where they were given uh, half a billion dollars in weapons and really reconstituted themselves in many cases. Yeah, I mean, some of them even turned up in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, I mean, I don't know if they've got their own budget airline, uh, but these jihadists somehow <laughs> miraculously make their way from theater to theater where it suits uh, the colonial powers for them to be. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and we have to remember that there is a deep animus between these radical jihadists in Iran. So they become a very effective tool uh, against Iranian interests. I think one of the kind of footnotes to the war in Iraq that people aren't always aware of is that it was Iranian intervention uh, that was crucial in terms of pushing back the tide of these radical Sunni groups. Uh, and uh, yeah, no, that's this, the shifting sands of uh, alliances in the Middle East is, is long and nefarious. Uh, so, no, I wouldn't find that far-fetched at all. But nobody, just like here in Britain, uh, nobody pays any price uh, for piloting and, and, uh, uh, and uh, proselytizing for uh, these disastrous wars. In the case of Afghanistan, you've spent a trillion dollars and given the blood of thousands of your young men and the limbs of thousands more, and the brains of thousands more, but nobody's held to account for it. Neither are the journalists who prattled on about women's rights and uh, we're doing this for democracy and so on. None of them are held to account, Chris. Well, no, they're promoted because they do what they're supposed to do, which is serve the interests of power. Uh, So all of the journalists, and of course I confronted them, uh, and I had been the Middle East Bureau Chief of the New York Times uh, on the, uh, you know, when there were all the calls to invade Iraq, all of these journalists and pundits uh, didn't pay a price because uh, they did what was good for their career and they serve the centers of power, which is why they remain where they are. It doesn't matter whether they're right or wrong. Uh, you know, the whole tenor of debate in the United States is ludicrous. Uh, it's, uh, it, it reminds me of what, uh, uh, Dorothy Parker once said of Catherine Hepburn's emotional range as an actress, it goes from A to B. So it's do we bomb them or do we bomb them and put boots on the ground? And those are kind of the endless discussions. Uh, and that's just part of the constriction of public debate and of the media itself. The people who are uh, commentators on the, these wars in, in Iraq are, are drawn, even on the quote-unquote liberal 
cable channels like MSNBC, they are the former CIA directors, uh, retired uh, generals, and uh, many of whom, almost all of whom, sit on the boards of defense contractors who are making a killing off these wars. So, yeah, that's just part of the whole corruption of the media. There's no price to pay. I mean, all of the architects of the war uh, have uh, never paid a price and, in fact, have been rewarded and fed it. Uh, for what I would argue is probably the, the, the most, the greatest strategic miscalculation in American history. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, it'll be no solace to you, uh, but exactly the same has happened here. None of the politicians who uh, followed George Bush into these disasters and none of the commentators are now without a job and most of them are in uh, promoted posts. So it's Another thing, like uh, common language, that we have uh, in common together. Chris Hedges, thanks very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Right, uh, Mara Time says, Afghanistan, the graveyard of empires. And Michael Kluwer says, a Russian general interviewed on TV around 35 years ago said, take the first road out now you will not win in Afghanistan. And Oliver Law says, George believes a book that endorses racial hierarchy, slavery, and genocide is a holy book. Well, I don't know about that, Oliver, but there are quite a few of us who think the book is holy. Uh, NSPK77 says the U.S. never forgave Haiti for being the first country that liberated itself from slavery. And uh, Yoda says, love the show, best entertainment and education on the airwaves. And Holly Stewart says, a great journalist right there, Chris Hedges is excellent. Uh, the USA is funding so much wickedness in the world. And Debbie says, I don't think anyone won in Afghanistan. Sammy says, the home team, Taliban and Afghanistan, beating the away team, USA and friends. Now it's time for Afghanistan to build infrastructure and improve living standards. Yeah, right. And MWNG says, the drugs are winning the drug war too. And Jack Klugman says, perpetual war is the name of the game, not winning. And Jack goes on, Julian Assange is in jail. And Cheney is on his fifth heart and enjoying a barbecue. Is he still around, Cheney? Uh, Peter Stevenson says, the Afghan people have lost, George. I thought you were better than this, to be honest. Give me a call, Peter. Tell me what you mean. And Oliver says, for some reason, George was on the jihadist side when it came to Yugoslavia. And that's the reason I will never trust him. What? I fought against the war on Yugoslavia with all my breath and all my heart. Me and Tony Benn and Jeremy Corbyn and others were practically the only people in this country opposing the war on Yugoslavia, the destruction of Yugoslavia. How dare you, you imbecile? If you have any guts, you'll pick up the phone right now and call this show 
and justify that utter slander. Really? Did the Taliban win in Afghanistan? Yes, 84, that's down one. B, no, 16, that's up one. Who are the 16 that think that the Taliban did not win the war in Afghanistan? Did we get Ian and Hanslow? Let's hear from him. Hello. Ian, go ahead, sir. Hello, George. Hi. It's about this um, unfolding story of infanticide in Canada. Isn't it an incredible story? It's, it's, it's awful. But now the uh, Canadian government has attacked China over its supposed oppression of the Ouija minority. And yet it's guilty of this heinous crime. Yeah, actually, the Canadian government is guilty of many crimes, uh, not the least of which is the illegal arrest of the uh, chief finance officer of Huawei, the daughter of the founder of Huawei, uh, that it holds in home arrest, house arrest, uh, at the behest of, of the Donald Trump administration. Nice and liberal, that, isn't it? But they've been joined by Australia who nearly wiped out their Aborigines, and mm -hmm. the USA who tried to exterminate the Native Americans, and they've got the brass neck to have a go at China. Yeah, especially as what they're saying about China is false. But what, what we're saying about Canada is admitted by them to be true. Absolutely, and the neoliberal shrills on the neoliberal radio stations are screaming through their microphones uh, with sinophobia, which is bad enough of COVID, pe oriental people being, being harassed. Uh, and it's whipped up, and they're ignoring the uh, calls like from myself, the call screening, pointing out the hypocrisy of the West uh, uh, towards China. Yep. Uh, I haven't seen that Canada story anywhere else other than on RT. Ian, thanks uh, for that call, calling out the hypocrisy of our rulers and their scribes. Vinny is in London. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Vinny. Yo, George, I love you, mate. Thank you, sir. I'll ask you a couple of questions, mate. Yeah. How's Why the football going? Team? Is it still 1-1? One, one? Yeah. I'm with you, mate. Listen, why is the England team taking a knee for a, a criminal? Well, we've had that discussion before. I don't think they are taking it for a criminal. It may have started that way before they knew he was a criminal. It was in solidarity with, uh, with black people who are uh, disproportionately uh, victims of uh, unfair, unjust, often murderous policing. And although uh, uh, Floyd may well, indeed is, uh, was rather a criminal, uh, that doesn't mean he wasn't cruelly murdered uh, in in plain sight. Yes. Well, what about the lockdown coming on the fifteenth of July because of the, uh, the the leaked report? The leaked report is coming out on the fifteenth of July. They're saying they're going to lock down everything. No, I don't think. I think the the lockdown is coming to an end, Vinny. I think you are being pessimistic. I, I see no prospect of people. Look at them on the screen. Uh, there's no lockdown coming for them. I think the genie's out of the bottle, Vinny. Nobody's um, gonna, nobody's gonna lock down again, um, son. The football, they had to let the football go on. They had no choice. But what they did, what is going on, 
the football is, is they can't stop the football, right? So now, in in three days, they're going to do another lockdown. Go on. No, not at all. You come back next week, and we'll uh, discuss how wrong you are. Vinny, thanks for the call. In any case, Chris is in Nottingham. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, hello, George. Uh, I'm just phoning up to say how surprised I was that uh, Dr. Ranji Bratt, who uh, I've enjoyed listening to in the past, uh, suddenly seems to have changed his tune and seemed to be saying that uh, we've been saved from COVID and that there's no need for any more uh, restrictions and we don't need masks anymore and we've all been saved. Uh, but that's a completely different picture from the one that I recognise from what I've been reading in the, uh, in the press over the last three or four days. Do tell then, give uh, us your take on it. Right, well, I'll, I'll give you my take. Um, the first uh, article I can, record, uh, I, I can re recall uh, reading was by Anthony Costello, who is a professor of global health at UCL, uh, and he said that, uh, we should, that it's stupid to try and make us live with the virus when only 50% of the population has been vaccinated. No, 90, 93% of the population has the antibodies of COVID-19, either through vaccination or having been infected by it. So 93% uh, is a very big number. Uh, it's quite clear that however many cases there are per day, it is not leading to a dramatic spike in hospitalization, still less a dramatic spike in death. So the calculus changes, Chris. When facts change, one's opinions must also change. I, Last one to you. With you. I disagree with you, George, Go ahead. because according to yesterday's figures, there were 2,700 hospitalizations, which was uh, uh, 2,700, which was up by 800 from the previous day. So we've got a new strain that's skyrocketing. Hospitalizations are up by 33%. Well, they are up, but they're in no danger at this moment of overwhelming, it's, it's early, it's overwhelming the health service. What is the well, case is that 13 million people are now on NHS waiting lists for treatment that they haven't been able to get because the whole health service has been given over to COVID. That's right. And when these hospitalizations increase dramatically, as they're going to do in the next few weeks, we're going to have all these, uh, all these people who are waiting for operations and who are not going to be able to get them because, uh, because there's going to be more and more COVID cases. So I'll be interested to see on your show what Ranjit Bra has got to say in another three weeks. So will we all, but I can tell you in advance that if the facts change, so will his opinions. He's not a dogmatist. Okay. He's not a dogmatist, Chris. Okay, last thing, he didn't mention long COVID. A million people in this country have got long COVID, which lasts for uh, 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 as much as a year in, in, uh, in many instances. He didn't mention it at all, including 30,000 children have got long COVID at this very moment. Okay, Chris, it uh, it's a game of opinions. Thanks very much indeed. Ted in Bradwell is next. Go ahead, Ted. 
Hello, uh, George. You're on fire. It's wonderful to thank you. Uh, have this uh, this show, the resource of this show, to be able to uh, connect with every week. Thank you. And uh, thanks for taking the call. Welcome. Now, it was great to hear Alex Mikhailovich talking about the uh, residential schools, a subject uh, very close to our hearts here. We have a little setup we call Peace Place, and it's a little bit of a community that uh, gets together and. Uh, uh, share a concern on uh, and one of our uh, concerns is this issue of the residential schools. Uh, about 10 years ago, we had somebody uh, come and speak to us about the re residential schools, the Reverend Kevin Annett, uh, who at his first ministerial appointment in uh, British Columbia came across this story, um, this bit of history at the the, the, he started to ask his church elders, why do we not have any of the, uh, the tribal people, the, the natives, the Indians coming? He, said, he was told, no, don't, don't worry about it. Uh, we leave them alone. But he befriended people, and gradually uh, this story started to come to light. And he was incredulous. Uh, he, one man said, well, we'd like you to marry us, but I'm not going in that church. Why would I go there when so many of my... School friends are buried behind, you know, the back of the building. Anyway, he, he got enough uh, evidence to bring this to light. He was defrocked from the church. Now, he's, uh, his name is Kevin Annett, and uh, I really hope you get him in as a guest yeah, on the show. Uh, uh, it, well, I have spoken to him uh, before, and it's a good, uh, a good suggestion, Ted. I promise that we will do so. I've got to clear the decks, though. It's a legend on the line. It's Norma in Bristol. Norma. Hello, George. I um, I really um, haven't really listened to very much of the program because I'm watching the football. But you know, it's awful at the moment. They're going to have extra time. I was so happy, then I was nervous. Now I'm worried. And if it goes to penalties, what's it going to be like? Well, uh, my prediction is 2-1 England in extra time. But from what I have heard mm. uh, from people coming in and out of the studio is that mm. Italy, Italy are dominating now. Yeah, they've got uh, to uh, And more, yeah. I seem more Italy. likely to score. Uh, well, oh, do you know. Um, I, I hope it really doesn't might... go to penalties. Well, uh, I, I, yeah, that would I, just oh. be agonising, Norma. Well, it's, it's not good for people as old as me. <laughs> or even as old as me. No, I no, could no, not, it's not watch England in a penalty shootout in the final uh, of the Euros. Anyway, we just have to see, won't we? Well, look, we? what you must do, Norma, is listen yeah. back to the show tomorrow oh, when you've recovered yeah, from the game. I can game. do that easy, yeah. It's awfully yeah, kind of you to break off from the game and call us. Uh, it's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. It was much easier than I anticipated that it would be. I thought we'd have a kind of non-show, given what's going on at Wembley. But we have had, I think, a thoroughly worthwhile one. If you agree with me, then please come back next week at the same time in the same place and bring someone else with you. Our audience has grown and grown and grown and our uh, year-long climb up the ratings is one of the best things that's ever happened to me. I hope it was also for you. Good night.
You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.